0: Arguably the most important story in this week's Parsha, and unquestionably the most dramatic story, not only in this week's Parsha, but in all of Sefer Bratius and perhaps among the most dramatic in all of the Torah, is the story of Yitzchak's deathbed brachos to his children, to Esav and to Yaakov. We all know the story, a childhood favorite, an incredible story. Yitzchak realizes his life is coming to an end, he wants to pass on his legacy and he intends to give the brachos to Esav. Rivka, his wife, overhears, convinces Yaakov to dress up and to trick his father so that he would get the brachos. Eventually, Esav comes home. Both he and Yitzhak realize what has happened. He gets second-tier brachos, if you will. He gets his own brachos, but of course his hatred for Yaakov is fueled. Yaakov needs to run away, and as he runs away, Yaakov gets another bracha, another second bracha, this time Yitzchak realizing who he was giving the brachas to at the beginning of Parakav Ches. So the dominant story, Parakav Zion, in the beginning of Per Ches tells us this dramatic, incredible story, which has so many questions, so many themes that need exploration. But for now, let's just focus on one, which is one of if not the most important question to ask, which is how could it be? How could it be that Yitzchak wanted and intended to give? His bracha, the bracha of his spiritual heir, two of all people, Esav. Didn't he realize that Esav was wicked? Didn't he realize that Yaakov was truly appropriate to be his spiritual heir? How come we needed Rivka to creatively, to put it mildly, write the ship to make sure things went as planned? How could it be that Yitzhak was going to give the brachos to Esav? This is a very basic, fundamental question, Therefore, it's no surprise that many mafarshim weigh in on this. And with numerous mafarshim offering their opinion, I'd like to divide the approaches into three basic approaches from mafarshim. The first basic approach is that, in fact, Yitzchak did not realize, he did not realize that Esav was unworthy. The Kliyakar points out that the phrase, Ba-Bayamim, is never mentioned with regards to Yitzchak's advanced age the way it was mentioned in last week's parsha regarding Avraham getting older. The phrase baba Yamim, says the Kliyakar, refers to the ability to retain one's sharpness, lucidity, and full mental faculties even in advanced age. Avraham had that blessing. Unfortunately, Yitzchak did not. And therefore, as a result, Hare to'abo v'yasavr Simply speaking, says the Kliyakar, because of the advanced age, Yitzchak simply did not understand and appreciate the true character of his son Esav. He didn't realize he was being tricked. He didn't realize that Esav was really a Russia. The Abarbanel makes a similar point, And he says, Enechanami, Yitzchak did not know he loved Esav. And in fact, it was his love that blinded him. Unlike Le'Kliyakar, who explains this is more as a natural phenomenon, the Abar emphasizes Ha'ahava me'chalkelas Hashura. He had such a love for his firstborn, he was blinded. As the Pesach says at the opening of Perch of Zion, as Yitzchak is getting old, ki'zakein Vet ve'tichhena einav me'raos, his eyes dimmed, he could no longer see. Perhaps it's meant literally, but the Abar understands it to be figuratively as well, that love blinded him Towards the faults and the true nature of Asaph. the Dasa Kainim Yatosvos also takes this basic approach, but has a slightly more critical analysis of Yitzchak. He says it wasn't just love, but rather bribery. We know that Asaph had flattered his father; he brought him all sorts of things. He was very good at keeping aim, and that got to Yitzchak. Says the Dasa and therefore, just like the Torah tells us that Shochat is Yaaver, a Necha that bribery blinds even the most virtuous of judges. This kind of flattery from Esav had blinded Yitzchak to his true nature. So each one of these mafarshim gives slightly different interpretations, but they all agree on the basic premise that the reason that Yitzchak was going to bless Esav was because he simply did not know that Esav was undeserving. A second approach argues on this completely. Both the Orachaim and the Radak say, "Of course, Yitzchak knew." That Esav was a Russia, but that's exactly why he wanted to give the brachos to Esav because he was hoping that Esav would be benefited, would be improved, would be transformed by the brachos. Says the Orachaim, he was hoping that through the brachos, Esav would be reformed and improved and transformed. And then he adds somewhat poignantly and very, hu- on a human level, he says, Tzadikim, and I would add, it's not just Tzadikim, but any parents, they are pained when they see their children going in the wrong path. Pain when their children are going off the derech, as we would say. And therefore, because of that great pain he had, seeing how wicked Esav was, that's why he gave him the brachos. The Radak makes a similar point, and he just adds that there was never an intention to give Yaakov a bracha, because he didn't think he needed it. After all, says Radak, Avram never gave Yitzhak a bracha, because he didn't need it. Therefore, Yitzchak never planned on giving Yaakov a bracha, because he didn't need it. He only gave the bracha, or wanted to give the bracha to Esav, because he knew how desperately he needed it. Last but not least is the approach of the Sforno. The Sforno argues on everything we've seen until now, and he suggests, in fact, that there was always an intention to give two brachos. Just in the opposite direction is the way it played out. But there was never only an intention to give one bracha. There was always an intention to split the brachos. That first bracha was intended for Esav. If you read the words, all the bracha there is about materialism and physical bounty, nothing about spirituality, because the plan was to maximize the strengths of the two brothers. Yisak knew who his sons were. Esav had great physical abilities, and therefore he wanted to bless him with physical gifts. Yaakov had spiritual abilities, and his bracha was intended to be a spiritual bracha. And as the Sforno, this was supposed to be the plan. That Esav would be the dominant physical one, and that would actually help Yaakov. He wouldn't have material blessings, that way he wouldn't be tempted by materialism, and he also wouldn't have the responsibilities. He could just focus on spirituality. And that's why the intention was for Esav to get that bracha. In the end, it worked out the way it did, and everything, Baruch Hashem, worked out okay. But it wasn't that Yitzchak made a mistake, he had a clear plan. One of the key questions, if not the key moral question in the incredible story of Yaakov, Yitzchak, Esav, and the brachos, is how could Yaakov do it? How could he deceive? How could he trick his father? How could he be so dishonest? Now, the simple answer, perhaps, is, well, he was just listening to his mother. But even that really begs the question, you know, if your mother tells you to do something wrong, you shouldn't do it. So this is obviously a complicated question, and there are many, many different approaches. But one approach, which seems to at least be struggling indirectly with this question, is the combined comments in two different psukim in the story, offered by the Ksav Hakabbalah, And in both cases... He uses characteristically brilliant insights into what seems to be just a subtle nuance of language in order to reveal something profound in between the lines. If we go back to the story, we recall that after Rivka overhears the request that Yitzhak had made to Esav to get him some food, to get him his favorite food, so that he could give him the brachas, Rivka moves into overdrive. She quickly tells Yaakov what's going on and tells Yaakov that he should take care of that, get the meat, bring them food, the delicious delicacies to his father so that he can get the brachos before Esav comes back and gets the brachos. Rivka has this plan. She's very action-oriented as she tells Yaakov what to do. And Yaakov's initial response is quite reasonable. And he points out the obvious problem with Rivka's plan. It's not the moral problem, but the practical problem. Ulai yimusheni avi vayisi be'enav kim ta'atea. After all, he says, my brother is hairy, I am smooth-skinned, and perhaps my father will touch me, and I will be found, I will be caught. It will be as if I am mocking him. Uh, in his eyes, I'll be like someone who is mocking him. And in fe- instead, he'll give me a curse instead of a blessing. Right? It's an obvious problem. So, commenting on this pasuk, the Kabbalah points out that when we talk about lest, or maybe uh, something will happen, here, the Torah uses the word ulai, ulai yimusheni. However, he points out that there's another word that seems to be synonymous, and that's pen. How come the Torah uses the word ulai here and not pen? We know that there aren't really synonyms in Lashon HaKodesh. What's the difference between these two words? What do we understand from the story by the Torah's choice of the word ulai? And the Ksav Kabbalah suggests that the difference is as follows. Pen is something that you say when you're worried something bad might happen, something you don't want to occur, and you're worried pen lest that come to fruition. And he gives examples of that. In fact, instead of that, the Torah uses the word ulai, says the Ksava Kabbalah. Isn't that interesting? With the way we would simply read the story, we understand that Yaakov is worried that he'll get caught. He doesn't want to get caught. He doesn't want to get found out. If that's the case, says the Ksava Kabbalah, then he should have been saying to his mother, "Pen yimusheni, lest I get found out. My father touches my skin; I get discovered. That would be terrible." But by the very fact that instead of using the word pen, he said "ulai," there we see says the Ksav Kabbalah, "Mizeh nira ki ish tamim lo haisa daato noche l'avatel Ratson aviv." In fact, he was uncomfortable with his mother's plot. He was uncomfortable with what he was being asked to do. He had significant moral qualms about what he had to do, and he did not want to trick his father. Nevertheless, he was between a rock and a hard place. He wanted to listen to his mother, but he was very worried and queasy about tricking his father. He would have preferred, it says the Ksav Shivarch Shevaruch Aviv, Asher Yachbos Lavarcho." Let his father bless who he wants to bless. He didn't want to be the one who took advantage of and tricked his father. And therefore, that's why it says Ulai, as if to say in almost a subconscious way, I might get caught, and I hope I do. lie, something might happen, and I won't mind at all. Fascinating, fascinating insight. Continuing this theme, just a few psukim later, when nevertheless his mother responds, no, you need to do this, and don't worry if, if you get cursed. I'll take the heat, I'll take the curse. So immediately, what do we read in the next posse after that? <speaking in Hebrew> so he went, he fetched, he got the meat, he brought it to his mother, and his mother made it into a delicious food. His father liked it, and then he was ready to get ready and dressed up into his uh, costume so that he could then go and get the brachos from his father. It says the Kabbalah, "In Safek Bracha let 's not misunderstand while he might have had moral qualms about it, he certainly would have wanted to get the bracha, No question about that, and once he saw that in fact, you know even if he couldn 't understand it, his mother is pushing him to do this, we would have expected that he wouldn 't have just gone to get the meat. He would have rushed and hurried, and in fact, many times we have similar situations where somebody in the Tanakh, one of our great heroes, is doing something very important, and certainly this would. Um, satisfy the standards of being called critical or important. And we see that the Torah goes out of its way to tell us that somebody ran or somebody hurried. We see this with Yaakov when he ran and hurried to take care of the guests who came to his tent. We saw this last week with Eliezer rushing and hurrying to approach Rivka once he saw her. Says the Qasavah Kabbalah, giving numerous examples of this, how come we don't have a similar Pasuk of Zrizus, no similar word, no similar phrase in this Pasuk that indicates that Yaakov ran. <speaking in Hebrew> he should have been rushing, he should have been going with great enthusiasm and alacrity. And yet, there's no word, there's no mention of any Mila de Zrizu. There's no word or any indication that he was rushing or hurrying to do anything of the sort. And therefore, says the Ksaba Kala, what could we deduce from this omission? Nevertheless, what do we see from this? He says, in fact, this is Yoreh. This indicates, this teaches, Shalohaya, Mizdarez, Abidavarlioso, ma Esaviv, Raglibo, Onso, Lasos, Rotson, Imo. In fact, this is a further example of his mixed feelings and his very uneasy feelings and qualms about tricking his father. He didn't rush. The reason the Torah doesn't tell us he rushed is because he didn't rush. And why didn't he rush? Because even though he was forced, he was onus to listen to his mother. He did it without his heart. His heart was just not in it. He couldn't bring himself to rush. He wasn't enthusiastic about it because he really felt guilty about it. So while there's still more to say on this complex and fascinating question about Yaakov's behavior, the Ksavah Kabbalah, with two different comments based on two different subtle words, uh, Diyukim shows us that there's something much more complex in between the lines than we might have otherwise realized. In this week's parsha, we were introduced to Yaakov and Esav in the Torah, and a very famous Pasuk, Par Kavhei, Pasuk Kavzain, distinguishes between these two brothers, despite the fact that they were brothers, despite the fact that they were twins. In fact, they were quite different. Vigdlu Han Arim, Esav Ish Atzayid, Ish Esav was a hunter. He was someone who hung out in the fields and in the forests. Yaakov, on the other hand, was an Ishtam, Yoshev Ohalim. He was more simple, more innocent, and he remained at home in the tent. Elaborating on these psukim, Chazal paint a very stark contrast between the brothers. On the one hand, the Gemara Babasra Baba tells us, that Esav was the embodiment of wickedness. On that very critical day that we'll read about later in the Parsha with the Vachora, the Gemara tells us that he had violated five of the most serious of Eros, including Kfirah, absolute heresy and denial of God, and Ratzicha, and murder. Yaakov, of course, on the other hand, we are told by Chazal, is a symbol of greatness, both in Torah and in Kedusha. In fact, there are statements that describe Yaakov as being the Bechir Shabavos, not just one of the forefathers, but the apex, the greatest of the three, synthesizing Tiferes, the great characteristics of both his father and his grandfather. So we have a very stark contrast between the two brothers, one an embodiment of wickedness, the other an embodiment of holiness. And yet, the Torah seems to be describing the two of them with characteristics which seem to be partial at best, and really somewhat trivial perhaps even, uh, on the other hand. Commenting on the phrase that Esau was the Ish Tzayid, says Rashi, he was an Ish Batel, he was a man of leisure. He really didn't do much. He wasted his time. Okay, that may be fair enough. But Lecha'orah, it begs the question, why does, Torah, why does the Torah, Rashi here accentuating it, emphasize something as relatively trivial as that, when in fact we know from the other sources in Chazal that he was a horrible and evil Russia. Why only focus on the fact that he was a hunter? In the scheme of things, this does not seem to be the biggest deal. The fact that he used to hang out and not do much in the forest. Not exactly a big deal in comparison to the horrible Averus that he did. And even Yaakov, why only and specifically focus on the fact that he sat and learned, as good as that is, but even that doesn't do justice to the overall and uh, comprehensive nature of this super tzaddik that was Yaakov. In order to answer these questions, Shimshon Pincus in his Sefer, Tifer Shimshon, suggests that in fact, evidently, The Torah is telling us that these characteristics are actually the key to understanding the entire personalities of both Yaakov and Esav. The Pasuk, in describing Esav's personality as a man of the field, as Rashi explains in Ish-Batel, it means, says Rav Penkis, that his nature was that he was the type of person who enjoyed hanging out, roaming the fields, not doing much, hunting for fun. As we might say in the current vernacular, he was a chiller, he enjoyed chilling. In says Pincus, what the Torah is telling us is that that's who he was in his essence, and it was as a result of that personality defect, the fact that in his essence, he wasn't a productive, hard-working person, but rather a lazy person who just liked to hang out and do nothing and enjoy himself. Because of that, as a result of that, mamela, it is that horrible character defect, that deficient attitude, which led to his egregious sins. Rapincus points out that the Pasuk in Eov and Perak says... The Adam From a wild donkey, a man will be born. Nepincus explains this in consistent with what he's saying about Asaph, that we are all innately and naturally, naturally and originally born as wild and untamed, and therefore we have to work on ourselves to develop ourselves into the right kind of person. If we don't do that, if we allow nature just to take its course based on the way we were originally born, we will become like a wild donkey, overgrown, wild, and out of control. It has to be tamed. It has to be focused. We have to do the gardening, if you will, the work, to mold it into a beautiful garden, into a beautiful donkey. Yaakov, on the other hand, is described as the Ishtam Yoshevo Halim. Says Rapinkis, this is also describing, not just the fact that Yaakov learned a lot, but it describes his personality. His personality was such that whenever he had a free moment, he was learning. That was his default. He was always looking to grow, always looking to improve himself, always willing to do the hard work. And that is what Mimela leads to all the great accomplishments, Yaakov ultimately being the Bechir Avos. So really the Torah is not emphasizing something that's relatively unimportant, but in fact the Torah is getting to the heart, the kernel, the key characteristic and defining character traits that differentiated Esav from Yaakov, the key characteristics, the key character traits that led Esav to becoming the wicked person that he was, that led Yaakov to becoming the great person that he was. As Rav this is not just true about our overall orientation and the direction of a person's life, but it's also true even just on a daily basis, he says, in very practical and down-to-earth musr for each and every one of us. Says Rav if a person has a long day of work and you come home, again, obviously, everyone needs perhaps a little bit of downtime, a little bit of time to refresh, to relax. And yet, Seder Pincus, if a person overindulges in that, takes more than they need, and really just is lazy and doesn't do much, in essence, they are becoming themselves in Ish Sadeh. On the other hand, if a person, despite being tired, coming home from work, spends a little time with the family, eating, resting up a little bit, but then whatever free time remains, uses that to do mitzvos, to learn Torah, to go to a shir, to help out in the community, to do chesed, etc., etc., then you are a yoshev ohalim. Cesar Pincus, this is a very profound point. Ultimately, we are defined by what we do with our free time. We all have certain obligations which we are bound by, responsibilities to our job, perhaps responsibilities to other people, especially our family, but every person has some degree of, some amount of free time. How we choose to use that free time ultimately defines who we are in our essence and the trajectory of our lives. That is the story of Yaakov and Esav, and that is what is being alluded to in the Pasach here, in our parsha, The drama and excitement surrounding how Yaakov obtained the brachos from Yitzchak sometimes overshadows the content of the brachos themselves. But the Torah tells us in Perak of Zion, Pasach that Yaakov received the following bracha, l'cha Umishmane and Hashem give you from the dew of the heavens, the fatness of the earth, Virov dagan v'tiroshe, and an abundance of grain and wine. The psukim continue; the bracha continues, telling Yaakov that he, people will serve him, other regimes will prostrate themselves before him, you will lord over your brothers, etc., etc. Anyone who blesses you will be blessed; anyone who curses you will be cursed. Wonderful, beautiful, fantastic brachos. However, Chazal note, and really anyone with a sensitive eye, should already be bothered by the peculiar nature and the syntax in the opening word of the bracha. V'yitain And Hashem will give you, It's a weird way uh, to begin a sentence, grammatically or from any other perspective. And God will give you? That's not how you start a bracha. Forget the technicalities of grammar, just it doesn't make sense. If you'd already said one or two things, and Hashem will give you Shema and Mishpan Eretz. But why would Yitzchak begin with the words Ve'Yitein So Rashi quotes a medrish from the Bracious Rabbah and Parsha Samach Vav very famously that Vav, as an introductory letter, we know can mean and, true, but Vav also has a connotation of a repetition. And therefore, says the Medrash, what the bracha really is is yitain the v'yitain. Yitzchak is blessing Yaakov that Hashem will give you tremendous amounts, but don't worry because if that ever runs out, yachzor Hashem will give you more every time you need. Hashem will keep on giving you yitain v'yachzor v'yitain. The problem with this, however, is twofold. Number one, hayad Hashem tikatzar, is it really? Imp- Possible for Hashem to just give everything Yaakov needed at once? Why would Hashem choose? Why would Yitzchak choose to give Yaakov a bracha from Hashem, which requires installment plans? We would all prefer to get a huge lump sum payment, if it was, you know, possible. Who would want to have to get a gift, you know, in many many installments? Well, usually people make donations or make mortgage payments and the like. Over time in installments because they have to, but does Hashem have limits? Couldn't Hashem give Yaakov everything he wanted at once? Why would He do it in an installment plan? Why is that a good thing? Why is that the bracha? Moreover, this question, in a certain sense, is strengthened when we consider that after Esav prevails upon his brother, that on his father, excuse me, that he should also receive a bracha. One of the things that Yaakov blesses him is quite similar in pasuk lamedes. We read that vyan That what did Yitzchak bless Esav? That the fatness of the earth will be your dwelling, and we tell me'al, and not only that, but also of the dew of the heavens me'al from above. And on some level, it seems like Esav's bracha is actually better, unlike Yaakov, who's getting these small, you know. Installment plans, but he keeps on needing a handout. When it comes to Asav, it's Mishmani Aret, Ye Moshe It sounds like something much more permanent, as if the Shmani will be his address. You know, he's really living the good life in a very permanent sense. So how do we understand Yaakov's Bracha in and of itself, the Yitain, the Achsar of Yitain, and certainly how does it stack up to the eventual Bracha that Asav received? The Svasemes is bothered by these questions and he actually addresses them in a number of places, and I want to focus on a theme that he develops in two different pieces, one which was given in the year Tafre Shlamed which is 1875 or so, and another one which he repeated and developed in Tafre Shlamed or 1878. Says the Sfasemes, his basic thesis is as follows, Hatsadik Eina Rotzalios Nimser Shomdavar what is important for the tzaddik, and he continues and explains more in depth and more clearly, is not the gift itself. For the tzaddik, for Yaakov, the most important thing is the relationship which is created, strengthened, and perpetuated with Hashem through the gift. But the gift, the wealth, the Shem'an He'aretz, the Tal is not the end of itself. It's the fact that through that, he has a relationship. In that sense, he says, The very fact that it's coming from Hashem is more important than the Guf Adavar, than the gift itself. Therefore, the greatest blessing Hashem could give Yaakov was Yitain yitain. You'll have everything you need, but it'll be in a way which you'll need me. You'll dive to me, you'll come close to me, and each time you come to me, I'll give you. But that will require and maintain an ongoing relationship. On the other hand, when it came to Esav, Mishman You'll have everything you need, and therefore you'll have no need for me, and I'll have no need for you. You'll be out of my life, so to speak, I'll be out of yours. There'll be no connection whatsoever. As the Asfasemes elaborates on in the second piece that I mentioned Shielo You'll get it. What, some way or another you'll get it. But it won't be from a direct connection to me. It won't be part of an ongoing relationship with me. And this says Isvasemes is the defining difference and the essence of the Bracha to Yaakov. What he says is the Nasina Shibirakh Yaakov with the Hashefa miyad Miyadhanose Baruchu Za HaBracha. It's not the material gift. It's the relationship that comes with the gift. And if the ikkar is the relationship, then the ongoing small gifts in a certain sense will foster and enhance that relationship over time much more than one big gift, which would never acquire any ongoing communication between Akkadosh Barhu and Yaakov. The prelude to the dramatic story of Yaakov and Esav fighting over their father's bracha is the Torah's description at the beginning of Perk Kavzayin of Yitzchak's eyes starting to dim. He's losing his vision, he's becoming partially or completely blind to the extent that it becomes possible as the story unfolds for Yaakov to take the place of his brother Esav and get the brachos. Rashi lists a number of opinions from Chazal as to where all of a sudden Yitzchak's blindness came from. One opinion suggests that it was based on the smoke of the Avodah Zarah incense coming from Esav's wives. A second opinion in the Medrash suggests that it goes back much earlier to the Akedah, when Yitzhak was laying on the altar and about to be killed by his father. He looked up to Shemaim to the heavens, and the angels were crying and a tear or tears fell from the angels into his eye and that dimmed his vision and eventually took away his sight. And finally, the third opinion that Rashi quotes is that it was actually completely new but it was directly Hashem. Hashem engineered this to happen at this moment to create the possibility to allow Yaakov to eventually get the Bachorah. Of course, there's an alternative possibility, suggested by the Ramban, that it was simply a natural result of old age, something similar to what we'll read about at the end of Bratis, that actually occurs to Yaakov in his old age. Be that as it may, we have the first uh, description of somebody who is blind in the Torah, and this gives rise to a very fascinating halachic discussion about what is the status of a summa, of a blind person in halacha. Is he or she obligated in a mitzvot like a healthy, sighted person or not? The Gemara in Kedushin Adaf Lamed Aleph, Amar Aleph, quotes the opinion of Rabbi Yehuda, who says that a blind person is actually patur, exempt from all mitzvot. The Gemara continues and tells us a story of the great sage Rav Yosef himself, tragically blind, and how Rav Yosef offers to make a kiddush, to make a celebratory meal, if someone will confirm to him that the halacha is like Rabbi Yehuda. After all, Rabbi Yehuda says blind people are exempt, but Rav Yosef himself was doing all the mitzvos, and therefore he assumes that if the halacha is like Rabbi Yehuda and he's doing all these mitzvos, even though he's not obligated he'll get a tremendous amount of reward, and that's such good news, it made him so happy, he was willing to make a celebration. The story continues, however, and he realizes that, in fact, it's not the case, that the halacha is gadol mitzuvah veoseh. You actually get more reward for doing a mitzvah that you're obligated in than if you volunteer for something that you were not obligated in. And therefore, if Yosef doesn't miss a dime, he says, okay, in that case, I'll make a kiddush, I'll make a celebratory meal, if you'll tell me that the halacha is not like Rabbi Yehuda that in fact I'll get more reward because I am obligated and God on the to of Yosef. Be that as it may, the implication of the Gemara in, the, in that story with Rav Yosef is that there may be some opinion out there that disagrees with Rav Yehuda. And in fact, we shall see that the Rishonim in their subsequent discussion of how to rule, how to paskin, do assume that there is this anonymous opinion, the Chachamim, who we don't have named, who actually argue with Rav Yehuda, and that was the back and forth that Rav Yosef was having about to make his kiddush or not. Before we get to that final conclusion and ruling about whether blind people are obligated or not in mitzvos, there's a very interesting discussion in the Akronim about understanding Rav Yehuda's opinion. Rav Yehuda said that blind people are pota for mitzvos. Well, how comprehensive was that exemption? Like it seems at first blush, did it include everything? Or is it somewhat limited? So the primagodim, actually has a very well-known position, very famously, a chiddish, that even according to Rabbi Yehuda, it did not mean the blind person is, obli- is exempt from all mitzvahs. Says the Primah Gadim, even according to Rabbi Yehuda, a blind person is exempt only from positive mitzvahs, is but even Rabbi Yehuda would agree that a blind person is absolutely obligated in all of the mitzvahs alotase, all of the negative commandments. The note of Yehuda in a tshuva rejects this position of the Prima based on a comment that Tosfos makes. Tosfos says that the Chachamim came along and obligated blind people in all mitzvos. Rabbi Yehuda says their pater, the Chachamim had to come along and obligate them. And why did the Chachamim come along and obligate them? Because otherwise a blind person would be indistinguishable from a non-Jew. And that would be an untenable reality. That's what Tosfos says. So comes along the note of Yehuda and says, it seems clear by implication that Tosos is rejecting the Primagodim. Because according to the Primagodim, a blind person is obligated in all the Lotases, in which case that would already be sufficient basis to distinguish a blind person from a non-Jew. Why would the Chachamim have to come on and give a special Takana if blind people are already distinguishable from a non-Jew in that they keep all the Lotases? The fact that Tosos says the Chachamim felt the need to add a new additional layer a new additional rabbinic mitzvah because otherwise the blind people would be indistinguishable from a non-Jew in, implies clearly, says Huda, the that according to Tosvos, the blind person was totally putr. Ase, lotase, positive, negative, totally exempt. In that case, they really are no different than a non-Jew. added. So here you have a fundamental machloket. According to the Nordihuda, Rabbi Yehuda's view is that they were totally exempt. According to Prima Garim, they were only exempt from the aseis. In a twist, the Minchas Chinuch says, even if you want to assume that they were exempt like from everything, like the Nood of Yuda, even that doesn't really mean everything. After all, says the Minchas Chinuch, it's inconceivable that a blind person would have less obligation than a non-Jew. And we know that a non-Jew was obligated in the Shev Mitzvot B'nei Noach, the Noachide laws. So that would be a 2B. The Primugodim says, obligated in all the Lotases. The Noachide Behuda says, Raisa Potter from everything. And Minchas Chinuch says, everything doesn't mean everything it even means, it includes, I should say, the mitzvahs B'nai Noach. In terms of the psak, there's a we've shown Rishonim on how to paskin, but we generally follow the view that we reject Rav Yehuda, that there is this opinion of Chachamim anonymously who argue on Rav Yehuda, and most poskim assume that we paskin like them. For example, the Shulchan tells us in Archaim Chaim non-Gimel that a blind person, asuma could serve as a chazin, and the Mishnah explains because we paskin against Rav Yehuda, and we paskin that asuma is in fact chayev in all mitzvot's.